But we're today, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 139. And the title of the message is God Cares for You. And <clears throat> I want to remind us of a verse from the New Testament before we read this. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And that is the truth and reflection of a man who knew very well the care of the Lord. That's Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he had the privilege of walking with Jesus side by side and seeing the expression of the Father through the Son as he ministered here on earth. And this is something Peter wanted us to know is that the Lord cares. He cares for you. And I think it's beautiful to see, you know, there's Peter, a rough fisherman, you know, a rough and tumble guy. Um, you know, the guy that was ready to fight, right? The guy that was ready to lop off an ear. That was the best he could do, but he was ready to fight. And this is a guy, though, who, who knew the care of the Lord. And as we look at Psalm 139 today, uh, the psalmist David was also a man, you know, a manly man, a man who fought battles, a man who uh, the Lord used to, uh, to do many uh, challenging things. And yet we're going to see in this psalm his, his expression of, and reminder of God's care for us. So I just want to go ahead and read this psalm, and then we'll go back in and take our time to look at it. But picking up there in verse 1, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count that they would be more in number than the sand... When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So this psalm is a beautiful expression, I think, of God's care for us. And, you know, David had firsthand knowledge of this. This is, he's not speaking here from theory. He's speaking from firsthand experience 
and his knowledge of God's care. In fact, in verse 14, the latter part of it, David says, and that my soul knows very well. So David had firsthand experience of the care and and the love of the Lord in his life. And how did he come to know these things? Well, he certainly didn't learn these truths from the culture of his day. We know that. The gods that people worshipped in David's day were, of course, nothing like uh, like this, like God. Baal was one of the predominant gods that was worshipped by the nations around David. And I'm going to read to you a quote from uh, the Holman Bible Dictionary, speaking of the Baal worship. They said, Baal worship in Canaan revolved around two themes that represented the conception of Baal his worshippers held. Baal was both the sun god and storm god. He was worshipped as sun god when the people wished to express thanks and gratitude for light and warmth and fertility. Worship of Baal as storm god took place to appease the destructive nature of Baal, demonstrated by drought and storms that devastated the vegetation of the worshippers. The efforts to appease Baal whenever adverse conditions prevailed culminated in the sacrifice of human beings, usually the firstborn of, one of, the, off- of, of the one offering the sacrifice. The victims were burnt alive, a practice in the Old Testament term to pass through the fire. And so that's the kind of gods that uh, people in David's day worshipped. You know, evil, capricious gods, gods that didn't have any current concern or care. And throughout man's history, that's the type of gods that man has come up with, is gods like that. But that's not our God. That's not the God that is declared to us and revealed to us through Scripture and, of course, ultimately revealed to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so David, though, here takes the time to just give us a a reminder from his experiences of who God is and and of God's care. You know, this psalm, you know, speaks of three of God's divine attributes, and we're going to look at that as we go through this. It speaks of his omniscience. He's all-knowing. It speaks of his omnipresence, he's everywhere. And it speaks of that he's omnipotent, he is all-powerful. We're shown in this psalm that God uses these attributes, not just for himself, of course. God uses them to care for us. And I think, hopefully, that'll be something that'll be just striking. And hopefully, this is simply a reminder this morning. Hopefully, you know this already about the Lord and his care and the way he uses his power and his knowledge to care for us and provide for us. So why is this psalm important? Well, I think it's important because of helping us to make sure we have a right understanding of who God is. And I want to read a quote from Warren Wiersbe on this in regards to this psalm. He says, what we think about God and our relationship to him determines what we think about everything else that makes up our busy world. Other people, the universe, God's word, God's will, sin, faith, and obedience. Wrong ideas about God will ultimately lead to wrong ideas about who we are and what we should do. And this leads to a wrong life on the wrong path toward the wrong destiny. In other words, theology, the right knowledge of God, is essential to fulfilled life in this world. David contemplated God and wrote for us a psalm whose message can only encourage us to be in a right relationship with him. And so I hope that's what happens for us this morning as we go through this, that maybe we've lost sight of who God is in our lives. And um, hopefully this will just be a reminder to encourage us to remember his care and his love for us. So let's go back here to the first four verses 
And in these verses, we see that God knows us. We see God's omniscience. Um, David there in verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So David knew that God had searched him. And this word searched means to examine thoroughly. That's what David is expressing to us here. God hadn't just given David a hasty once over. He had taken the time to know him in detail. And same is true for each one of us this morning. Out of all the billions of people that live on this planet, the Lord knows you in great detail. He searched you. And he knows your life. He's aware of who you are. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10.30, he said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And, um, you know, so that's detail, right? To know the number of hairs that are upon your head, that's the kind of detail and knowledge with which the Lord knows us. In verses 2 through 4, um, David goes on to express, um, uh, just uh, highlight a little bit more of what he was saying in verse 1. He says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So we see here that David says, the Lord knows when we sit and when we stand. The Lord knows our thoughts even before we know them. Even before you thought a thought, the Lord knows the thought that you're going to think. And he is acquainted with all of our, our ways. You know, God's knowledge is so complete, as David is expressing here, that not even a word or a tongue is unknown to him. And you can hear David's amazement of these truths at the end of verse 4 when he says, But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so, and we'll see that throughout this psalm, just that awe of like, Wow, Lord, you know, you know me. You know everything about me, and nothing is hidden from your eyes. God knows you, and he's not caught off guard by any aspect of your life. There's nothing that surprises him about you, because his knowledge of you and of me is complete. Spurgeon, I want to read a quote from Spurgeon. He says here, if we would praise God aright, we must draw the matter of praise from himself. No pretend God knows aught of us. But the true God, Jehovah, understands us and is most intimately acquainted with our person's nature and character. How well it is for us to know the God who knows us. And that's what I hope happens as we go through this this morning. As again, hopefully it's just a reminder. But at the end of the day, when we walk out of here, that we would know in a better way the God who knows us. He knows us and he wants us to know him. And I think it matters that we know this about the Lord. And one of the reasons I think it's so important is so that we can have strength in trials. Because when trials come, you know, one of the first things that, that can happen in a trial is the enemy will come and say, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. God, God doesn't have any clue about what's going on in your life. And it can feel as though you're alone. But this psalm, and the Lord wants us to know as we study this, that the Lord is there and he does know the things that are going on in our lives. So God's knowledge of us, that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. That brings us to verses 5 through 12, where David talks about the fact that God is with us. In other words, he's omnipresent. And David here begins to consider uh, just 
the truth and what that means for his life and, and, and for ours. And he says there in verse 5, You have hedged me behind and before you have laid, and laid your hand upon me. Now, I love this word here that he uses, the word hedged. That word, the Hebrew word, means to tie up. It means to bind. It means to encircle. And it also means to lay siege to. And I think that's primarily, and that's why it's translated here as besieged or hedged. I mean, this is what is trying to be conveyed to us, is the Lord has laid siege to our life. This word is used 32 times in the Old Testament, and 24 of those times it is translated in our English Bibles as either besieged, lay siege, or laid siege. And so as David describes it here, God is behind and before us. He has laid siege upon our lives, and of course David is using uh, an analogy from his day, right? In those days, that's how warfare was fought. Uh, the, the opposing army would come and would surround the city until the city surrendered. And David is saying here, this is what the Lord has done. Of course, in the Lord's case for us, this is for our good. It's not for our harm. That he has completely encircled your life. And there's not anything that can come from behind or anything that's ahead in our lives. that The Lord is between us and that, there to protect us. And, you know, and just on that note, thinking about the fact that he's gone behind us, I mean, sometimes for us, the past can be a very difficult thing, right? Sometimes we've had things in the past that are traumatic, and they've been difficult, and they've left scars upon our life, and, they've, and, they're, and it's been hard to overcome. But the Lord is between you and that, he wants you to know that, yes, that was real. Yes, that happened. But I'm between you and that. And don't let that thing in the past or whatever the thing is in the future that you're afraid of keep you from knowing my care and my love for you and keep you from allowing you to, to be used by me. And, and that's what can happen. The enemy loves to have us dwell in the past, whether it's things we failed in, are things that were done to us, and he likes to keep us stuck there and unable to move forward. But hear what he's saying to us this morning is he has surrounded us. He's encircled us, and not for our harm, but for our good. So he's with us in every aspect of our lives. David recognized not only that God had besieged him, but as I already read there, the last part of verse 5, that he had laid his hand upon him. That word laid means to place one hand's hand on someone to protect them. So again, not for the purpose of harm, but for the purpose of protection, David recognized that God's hand was upon his life. And, you know, as I contemplate that and think about my own life, that's something I'm very thankful for, is that God's hand is on my life. You know, I think about the fact I just turned 50 here, here this month, and to think about the good life that I've had because God's hand is upon my life. He's laid his hand on me. And not because I deserve it or I'm special, but because he, just, he loves me and he loves you. And he's laid his hand on you. And he desires to protect you. And so we see in verse 6, what is David's response to these things? And well, it's an acknowledgement that these things are too wonderful and high for him to attain. And so... May that be our response to that truth there in verse 5 this morning, that this be mind-blowing to us, 
that this is too wonderful for me to even comprehend that the Lord has done this, that he's encircled me, that he's laid his hand on me, that he cares that much about me, and he has the knowledge that David has already expressed in those first four verses of my life. David was literally just blown away as he thought about it. And Job 7.17, Job says, What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? And if you're not amazed by the fact that of these things that David's expressing, then perhaps you have too high of opinion of yourself. You don't realize just how amazing it is that God would do this. But he has, and he wants us to know that he has. And so David isn't trying to shrink back from God's omniscience, God's knowledge. David isn't trying to hide from it. He's reveling in it. He's appreciating the fact that God knows him in this way. Um, in verse 7, um, David comes back to, to, comes to two questions that he poses as he's thinking about God's presence in his life. He poses two questions. He says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your, from your presence? So verse 5 again, David acknowledged that he was surrounded by God and that God's hand of protection was on him. Now he's contemplating these two questions though. Is there a place I can go? where God's spirit is not there, where I could be away from his spirit, or where I can flee from his presence. And I don't think he's asking these questions because he wants to do that. He's, just, he's asking himself these questions because he wants to have the confidence and know that it's not possible. It's not possible to be anywhere where God's spirit and God's presence are not there. So David there in verse 8 begins to consider places that he could go. And, and still God would be with him. The first is heaven. If I ascend up into the highest of highs, into heaven, is God there? Of course, yes, God's there. If I descend, he asks, goes on, if I descend into the lowest of lows, to the grave. I think that's the better translation of that word there. And New King James translates verse 8, if I make my bed in hell, um, the better is Sheol, the grave. If I descend to the grave, is God still there? The lowest of low. And they, of course, the answer is, Yes. And then David considers another possibility in verse 9. He says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So he considers the possibility, what if, of course this is not possible, what if he could take the wings of the morning? In other words, I think what he's saying here, if I could fly at the speed of light as the dawn rises, across as far as possible to go, if I could go that far and that fast, would God be there? Would God be in that place? And of course, the answer he concludes is yes, you know, God would be there no matter the place. Um, No matter where there is, no matter where, (laughs) God is there. He's already gone there. He's already there. And so there's not a place that we can go that God is not there. And the Lord wants us to know that. He, that he, this morning, whatever is ahead of us in life, whatever, and we don't, most of us, we don't know what's ahead, right? But whatever is head, ahead, wherever there is, God is there. He's there waiting for us and ready to care for us. Um, and again, so the answer, obviously, David concludes is no, there's nowhere I can go that the Lord is not there. And Spurgeon said on this, he says, where, 
were we to speed on the wings in the morning and break into, un- oceans, uh, into oceans unknown to chart and map, yet there we should find the Lord already present. Jeremiah 23, 24, the prophet says, can, you hide, can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? And so as vast as our world and then, of course, the universe is, There is nowhere that the Lord isn't present and that he doesn't fill. And and David here reminds us of that. Um, He reminds us that there's no place that we we can go and the Lord not be there. You know, the Lord wants us to know that he's going to be there to lead us and to guide us in in, in our lives. Uh, Verse uh, 10, I just want to read that again. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God will use his hand, and the word hold means to grasp, to take hold, seize, take possession. And so I think uh, a modern picture of this, uh, for those of you who are parents, you understand this very well. Like when you're walking your kid across a road or a parking lot to get into a store or across the street, you take their hand, right? You take their hand and you make sure they get to where you're trying to go. And that's the imagery of what David is trying to convey here. He's trying to convey that the Lord has taken his hand. And he's making sure that he gets to where the Lord wants him to be. And again, thinking of who wrote this, here, you know, David, a warrior, a tough guy, a guy who had faced many battles and fought many fights. And yet he's appreciating the fact that God had taken his hand. And God was taking him to where he wanted him to go. And then verses 11 and 12, he says, If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. In these verses, David contemplates um, darkness and the effect of darkness upon God's ability to be with him, and more importantly, God's ability not only to be with him, but to see him. Now, We're not sure what David's referring to here when he speaks of darkness. He could be referring to uh, the darkness of no light, no physical light. He could be referring to the darkness of death. Um, And, you know, and another darkness that some people experience is the darkness of depression. And so whatever, though, the point is, whatever the darkness is that, that we face or we come to, the Lord wants us to know that it's no different to him. It makes no difference. He still sees and he still knows. And so I think, to me, these verses are a comforting reminder that in the darkest of moments in my life and in your life, that God, God sees us. And again, I think that's one of the things the enemy loves to do when darkness is in our life, when there's, maybe it's depression, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, maybe it's a physical illness that has gone on for a long time, and it can be dark The enemy loves to then cause us to question, does God even see? Does God even care? And David's point here that the Lord is is using him to convey to us is that, yes, he sees. It makes no difference. No matter, there is not a darkness so dark that he cannot see, and he is not aware of what's going on in our lives. David, in Psalm 23, 4, he said this, Yea, thou walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 5, the last part of the verse, where he says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is God's promise to us. And that is what David is reminding us of here this morning is that through this psalm is that God is with us and he's not going to forsake you. He's not going to cast you off and and there's nothing that can hide you from him. He sees it. And that brings us to um, the the omnipotence of God, his power. And, and And David reveals that and brings that forth here in verses 13 through 18 when he speaks of the fact that God created us. Um, David now, in these verses, begins to consider this awe-inspiring truth of God's creation of him. He says, therefore, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Every detail of our body down to last cell was made by God. This is, this is the truth that's being declared here. Our bodies are so complex that even today, with all modern science, there is still much that is not understood. And if any of you have had been sick or had a loved one that's been sick, I'm sure you've heard this probably said, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And that, that used to irritate me a whole lot to hear that. It's like, what do you mean you don't know? You're the doctors. You're supposed to know. You have all this information. And yet, you know, it's still complexity and things that they don't know. But the Lord knows, and the Lord made us. And so David here recognized at the earliest stages of his life, God was covering him with protection. He says, you covered me in my mother's womb. We are so small, right, at those early stages of life. Our hearts start beating at around five weeks old, and at that point, we're no bigger than an apple seed. We're very small. And yet, even at that early stage and small stage, God was taking care of you. He was watching over you. Um, and this remind, what this reminds me of, and you know, I'll confess, one of my struggles in life is tending toward worry, tending toward wanting to worry about things. And what I love about this, we're being told that the Lord was taking care of me and taking care of you even before you knew you needed taken care of. I mean, you weren't aware of what was going on when you were in your mother's womb. And, being, and growing, and life was forming. You had no knowledge. And yet, then, the Lord was taking care of you. He knew what was happening, and he was, he was, he was watching over your life. And so, don't allow <clears throat> yourself to be overcome by worry. Contemplation there in verse 14 of what God did in creating David causes David to break out and pray. So again, back to this thing of praise. He says, I will praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Now, as I've said, you know, a moment ago, science and modern things, we know a lot more than what David knew in his day about how babies grow in the womb and about so many other things. And yet, I question and wonder, do we have the same awe? Do I have the same awe that David had in his limited knowledge about, marvelous, about God's marvelous works. It seems to me that in our world today, despite mankind knowing so much more about life in the universe, there's less awe than ever about what God has made. And in fact, in some cases, there's right an animosity toward God and the idea of a creator. 
But David here is just like blown away. He says, I praise you because look, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that word uh, skillfully wrought that he uses there in verse 15, um, it says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That word conveys the idea of embroidery. So David is saying, God was knitting me together. He was making me, forming me, creating me. And so is the same for you and I, that the Lord was doing that. He made you in the image of, in his image. He, and it, it wasn't some think, standoff process. The Lord was involved in our creation. And he wants us to know that. And for us as believers this morning, that's doubly true. Not only has he made us, created us as human beings in his image, but we also have been create, recreated again spiritually. Ephesians 2.10, there Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that is, a, to me, an amazing truth. And I just want to pause here and just share a little bit from my own life and what that verse has meant. You know, uh, five, six years ago, um, I was at a conference, and that verse was shared, and um, the Lord used it to kind of really speak to me about a place I was in my life. I was at a place, and, you know, and still can fall back there if I'm not careful, of being very critical about my shortcomings and my lack of this or lack of that or uh, even my own failings. And the Lord reminded me from that verse that I was his workmanship, and so that for me to criticize and be critical, I wasn't criticizing really me. I was criticizing him and his work in my life. And, you know, you think of we're going through Exodus right now with Pastor Troy and the story there with Moses. You know, Moses talks about he wasn't eloquent of speech. And I believe that was true. But the Lord was like, I made you. I made you like that. And I'm still going to use you. And so my encouragement to you this morning is no matter what your physical limitation is, no matter whether it's what it is, whether there is some physical handicap or some mental struggle, whatever, the Lord has formed you and he's created you anew in Christ Jesus if you're a believer this morning and he has works for you to do. He has things that he's called your life to. And so don't let those limitations become an excuse to not do what God has called you to do and what God's asking you to do. And, um, and know that if you are criticizing and focused on your shortcomings, you know, you're criticizing his work. You're his workmanship. He's made you and, and created you in Christ Jesus for good works, and he wants to use your life. Verse 16 David, again, says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none. Again, God saw us even before we existed. He has written all of our days in a book. Spurgeon says here, God saw us when we could not be seen, and he wrote about us when there was nothing of us to write about. And this is what the Lord has done. He's numbered our days. He's written them in a book, and he has them written out for us. This is, I think, why Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, a section of verses I know very familiar to us, but Luke 12, 22 through 28, 
It says there, then he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And so the Lord has our days. He knows what he's, what, when they're going to end. He knows when we're going to leave this world. And so the point being is, like, don't spend your life worrying about that. Don't spend your life being anxious about tomorrow. The Lord has it. He knows it. He, and he, again, has written this stuff down, and he, he has a plan and a purpose. And don't, don't allow those things to keep you from what the Lord has because you're focused on worry. Now, in verses 17 through 18, again, we come back to, I think, some worship here in verse 17 as David still continues to contemplate the awesomeness of this. And he says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. And he goes into then to say, How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God's thoughts, David is expressing here, are so numerous, they're more in number than the sand on the shore. And again, this should bring humble worship and awe back to us. Who am I, who are any of us, that God should think that much of us? And yet, he's declaring to us that this is the case. He does think of us. He thinks of us. His thoughts towards us are many. Psalm 144.3 says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? And yet, God does think of us. Even though we are nothing in the grand scheme of things, he thinks of us, and he cares about us. The fact that God thought of him was a precious thing to David, and that's why he says, how precious also are your thoughts toward me. David stood in awe of it, and it was a precious thing to him that God thought of him. And so I ask you this morning, is it a precious thing that God thinks of you? That God's thoughts are toward you? You know, and, and not to take that lightly. I'm, and I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're going through this morning some severe trials. But the Lord wants us to know that he's thinking of us. That we're on his mind. That we're not, he's not distant. He's not uncaring. He's completely aware. I want to read a quote from Phillips here. He says, God does not leave the making of a human being to the mechanistic forces of chance. He is directly involved in each stage of the process, nor does he tender, his tender care cease once the individual is launched into the world. His care continues. He thinks about us all the time. We are the object of his constant care and concern. His thoughts towards us are more than the grains of sand on all the world's seashores. How sad that so few people in this world ever come to realize that. How criminal are those godless systems of philosophy which rob us of this comfort which also rob God of our appreciation and love. And so this is not a small thing to sit and contemplate the fact that God thinks of you and God cares about you. 
It's not something to take lightly. It's not something to be dismissive of. In fact, it's something to just live in constant worship that the Lord is aware and the Lord thinks about us. And he, and the, he wants us to know this. So I started off in the message, you know, talking about how did David know these things? And, you know, David had come to know the God in this way, the way he describes in the psalm, I think through experience. And I think in three ways he was able to experience and learn these things about the Lord. One of those is through worship. Um, it is clear that David was a worshiper of God. And that's seen in the many psalms that he wrote. But just two uh, different references here. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. There David says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My soul longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I mean, what does that sound like to you? Does it sound like a guy who had a take-it-or-leave-it attitude about worship of the Lord, about being in his presence? And it didn't. I mean, he was all in and worshiping the Lord and spending time in the Lord's presence. And because of that, he knew these things about the Lord. They were experiential. They weren't theory. He knew these truths that he's declaring in this psalm. Uh, and another way I think where the David experienced the Lord was just meditation on God's word. You know, Psalm 119, verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And Psalm 119, 148, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. And so there is a passion, there is a desire to know the word of God. And so through worship and through meditation on the word of God, he knew who God was. And this is something in our world today that's more important than ever. I mean, our lives are pressed in with so many distractions, so many things challenging for our time and our attention, and we have to be intentional about being worshipers of God, not just in the public setting like this morning, but in private, and, um, and be people who are meditating and thinking on what his word declares, because everything in our lives is contradicting the word of God and the truth that's there. And so we have to be going back to it and meditating on so we can know these things for ourselves. You know, not experience them through somebody else, but know them personally. Know that this is the way the Lord cares for us. Now, lastly, you know, one of the ways I think in which David experienced and knew these things is one of our least favorite, and that's trials, right? Nobody likes trials. Nobody says, Let's go. I want a trial, you know. But it was through trials and testing that David learned the care that God had for him. And one of those, I encourage you to go back and, and read, is 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. There, David and his men had a city that they had left with. They, they had left their Ziklag. They had left their wives and their children and everything they possessed there. And they went out to battle. And they came back to find the city burning and everybody gone. And so obviously, as you might would imagine, there was great despair by David and his men because they thought all was lost. And that despair in David's men's lives caused them to turn on him, and they were ready to kill him, it says. And it's, but, there, but David, in those section of verses, it says of him that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
And so David, in his trial, strengthened himself in God and allowed the trial to draw him closer. You know, David was a man who experienced waiting. And uh, like I said, trials, he, it was 15 to 20 years from being anointed till he ever reigned as king. And in those trials, in those seasons of his life, he learned these truths about the Lord. He learned of the Lord's care for him. So that brings us here to verses 19 through 22. And you might, in reading, when I first read to it, it might have struck you as like, where did, this, where did these verses come from in the midst of this? And, um, and I think what David is expressing in these verses is just a real grieving over rebellion. You think about the context here. David has just expressed these lofty ideas about who God is about God's all-encompassing knowledge and care and power and, and, and love and concern and, and all that God's done. And yet he looks around him and he sees people that are living wicked lives. They're in opposition and rebellion against the Lord. And so David has some righteous indignation toward those people, toward their rebellion, their rejection of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> Granted, we're not supposed to hate people who don't know the Lord. That's not what is being said here. But there was a, just a real grieving and a yearning, I think, for God to come and righteously judge. Because it's like, how could people reject a God like this? Was, was what David's response was. And, you know, in Revelation chapter 6, we get much the same. You know, there during the tribulation, the saints... In the throne room, in verse 10, chapter 6, it said, They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so, one who knows the Lord and is walking with him, you desire for the Lord to come and reign in righteousness. There's a desire for that. And it's not that we want to see people judged, and that's not what the Lord wants. The Lord doesn't want that. And that's why he's made a way for us to escape. And we're going to be reminded of that as we share in communion in just a moment. But I think that's why the stark contrast to me in these verses is he's grieving over the rebellion that he sees. I mean, why? Why would a world not want a God like this? Not want him to be a part of their life? And so that brings us to the last verses here, verses 22 through 24. And I think we see there a humble awe. Um, David, in humility and recognizing that he, I think, could be one of these wicked people, he's saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, David had been in the presence of God, and this had brought a realization to him of his own sinfulness, and he knew he needed God to search him. He acknowledged right in verse 1 that God had searched him, but he's simply expressing desire here as the psalm comes to an end as a desire that God continue to do this. Search me, Lord. Search me. Look at my life. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. And why? Why did he want that to happen? I think it's for the purpose of seeing if there was any wicked way in him. David knew he needed the refining gaze of a holy God upon his life. That's what David is asking for. And he didn't want to end up being one that he had just mentioned, one who rejected God, one who was in opposition to him. And so he recognized the need for God to search him and to try him. 
and they revealed to him things in his life that were not right. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So that's God's desire. God desires to, for us to be in that hum- humble place of recognizing that we need his gaze upon our life. And we need his spirit to show us and to allow him to convict us of things in our lives. So um, we're, we're going to take communion in just a minute. So I'm going to get the ushers to uh, go ahead and get ready and the worship team to come up. And there's just some questions I just want to pose to us as, um, as we are going to be sitting here and, um, and, and worship and considering communion. As, you know, one is, believer, do you know God like the psalm has declared him? Do you know him like this? It's not enough that David knew him like this. It's not enough for uh, someone in your family to know him like this. It's, but do you know God like this? Because in, And he wants you to if you don't. And it's possible for you to, to. You just have to want to. Is there a reverent awe in your life for who God is? And, and, and what he's done and his care for you? Are you allowing yourself to experience him through worship and through meditation on his word? You know, perhaps this morning, as I mentioned, you're in a trial. Are you allowing God to use the trial to experience God's love and care for you? It's an opportunity. The trial's an opportunity for you to experience God's love and care for you. And he wants to show it to you. But are you allowing yourself for that? And if that's not happening, you, you I say this in love, You've got to get your eyes off the trial, and you've got to get it on Jesus, and you've got to get it on the Lord because he cares, and he wants your eyes not on the circumstance but on him because that's where the love you see and experience the love of God. And perhaps today you're someone in here who doesn't know the Lord personally, okay? And you're one who has up to this point rejected him and said you don't want anything to do with him. But even in that, you're still his creation. He he formed you, he made you, created you in his image, and his desire is for you to know him personally. And that's what we celebrate this morning when we celebrate communion is we celebrate that truth that God has gone out of his way to make it possible for us to know him and be in a relationship with him, for our sins to be forgiven. And no better time than today here right now than for you to do that today. If you don't know the Lord, call and ask, Lord, forgive me. Come into my life and be Lord of my life. I want to follow you. And the Lord's promise is that he'll not turn you away. He'll receive you. So the ushers can come forward. um, And I just want to encourage you to contemplate these things. But let me pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And Lord, just speak to us now as we sit here before you, as we remember your sacrifice. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and remind us afresh of your love and your care and of your presence in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.